Hello, everybody, and welcome to another one in our long-running series now of financial well-being podcasts. As ever, in recent times, we're all spread out in separate places. My name's David Lloyd. I'm here at uh, Lloyd Towers. Joining me is Chris Budd over at uh, Budd Mansions, and Tom Morris is also joining us from a shed somewhere on the A370. So welcome, guys. How are you, Chris? I'm very well, thank you, David. I'm in my cabin in the garden with the rain drumming on the roof. So it's not that that's the background noise we have today. Other than that, very good, thank you. Yeah, Tomo, and yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm doing okay actually. It's almost six months of working in my uh study, which doesn't have a window. So uh I think I'm slowly going a little bit uh a little bit mad. But yeah, yeah, it's okay, I'm all good. Do you yeah, guys... I had a realisation a couple of days ago that essentially I've been on holiday for five months. It's just essentially felt like one long holiday and I suddenly realised that I needed to break that state of mind of thinking, that's oh, all right, it's a lovely sunny day, I'll do some more gardening. So uh, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been trying to re-engage myself with the world of work. But anyway, good to catch up with you guys. Uh, what's on today's podcast, Chris? Well, today, David, we are going to look at why a person who sees success in financial terms they will be less happy than they might otherwise be. Ah, well, now, given that the whole basis of these podcasts is financial well-being, as explained in the excellent book of the same name by the excellent Chris Budd, that's a very interesting notion. So uh, are you linking happiness with well-being, or is that perhaps a slightly separate thing here? No, same thing. I mean, that's an interesting question in itself. Is there a difference between happiness and being happy and well-being? And I would say the difference between the two is that well-being is more a state of mind, a long-term thing, whereas happiness is a kind of moment in time. But So, yeah, it is well-being, really, although I kind of think the two words are interchangeable. But, yeah, we are, we are going to go as far as to say that if you are somebody who see success in money if you if you chase money then you will be less happy than you would otherwise be and that's what we're going to try and prove today excellent well i look forward to that it should be a very interesting conversation well we'll let our listeners judge as to how interesting it is but i'll enjoy it anyway but before we do that it's time for the first of our regular features and we're going to kick off with beige's behavioral biases so this is where an old friend of the podcast behavioral finance expert neil beige gives us his one-minute introduction to a different behavioural bias that affects how we make decisions about money. And this week, Neil is going to tell us about herding. Herding bias is the inclination for people to mimic the crowd without taking into consideration their own judgments and therefore making independent decisions. To explain what this means, we at BIQ created an online investment club game. Users had to invest certain amounts of money on a monthly basis, which was a free choice, no influence at all. However, before their chosen investment amount was invested, they got to see not only how other people in the club predicted the market would perform, but also how much money the other people were investing. Now, at this point, the users were offered a choice. Stick with your own decisions or instead follow the crowd based on their prediction and the amount of money the crowd on average were investing. Now, the game offered people seven distinct chances to change their mind or stick with their own choice. And it turns out that 12% of people do indeed stick with their initial choice. They weren't swayed 
at all throughout the entire game by what the crowd were doing. 4% of people changed their mind every single time. So even though they made their mind up initially, the power of the crowd was just too much. And each time they opted to run with the masses rather than stand alone and go with their own choice. When you explore the broader findings, 84% of people change their mind at least once. With most people, 37% of people, changing their mind at least four times out of seven. Now, this is a staggering amount of change based on nothing more than what other people are doing. And even though we know that this was just a game, it is a perfect mimic of what happens in real life investing. There we go. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting stuff. And, and actually, it, it mirrors human behavior in so many other ways, doesn't it? That we, um, we, we sometimes, if we feel very confident about making a fund, we're not sure. And we might look around. Uh, how often have you been to and see what other people are doing? How often have you been to a meeting where somebody gives a keynote speech and then at the end they will say, uh, right, who wants to ask the first question? And everybody sits there and nobody says anything. But then eventually somebody puts their hand up and that somehow gives permission for everybody else. And you can then end up with what's quite an interesting conversation. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting uh, uh, tip from Neil there. In investment terms, we do tend to, you know, we, we tend to follow what everybody else is doing. It's, it's a truism of investment that you should get in at the bottom and out at the top. But if you look at the statistics of money going in and out of the market, it actually is the opposite way around. Most people get in at the top because they're feeling nice and confident because that's what everybody else is doing. And they get out at the bottom when they have a bit of a panic. So herding is a really important bias for investment, but also just for financial well-being and our happiness in general. There's that, um, is it Theodore Roosevelt that said comparison is the thief of joy? So I think herding is fascinating. Anyway, that's uh, Tomo, we've, uh, at Ovation, we've been using Neil's uh, tool for quite a while, haven't we? The Beam we app. And uh, you must have done this game with lots of clients. I have, and uh, it's something you can get online. It's it's the B map, and we have a we have a back office system that sees these results, and it's really telling that you go through this sort of gamified approach of different areas, different biases. Some of these that that, that Neil has already talked about in previous podcasts, and the herding one is strong. It's strong, and when you talk about it, they go, "Oh yeah," and and I I look at where we see this in. In real life, I think market, all of this, marketeers really tap into this sort of thing. They sort of get this groundswell of momentum and then everyone goes, oh, yeah, let's all do that. But I look at Sunday supplements, financial-wise. They're always latching onto the latest craze that just perpetuates all of this. So it's really important to... Well, what we, the way we approach things at Ovation is, yes, we need to understand these biases that we have. But really important to what's the plan why are you investing and stick to it and try your best to ignore the fads that come along. Um, and that's really important. Excellent. Thanks for that. So let's move on then to um, our next regular feature, one that's very popular with all our listeners. Uh, and if you want to contribute to this, uh, it's tight ass Tomo, obviously is what I'm talking about where our chief of cheapness, Tom Morris comes up with a money saving tip. And if you want to contribute anything and you're on Twitter, hashtag tight Tomo and let us have your suggestions. But in the meantime, uh, Chris, have you got one for us today? 
Well, I've kind of got a reverse tip this time because I was looking for, I've got to be honest, I went on the internet to see if I could find any tips. I've asked my mum, I've asked my wife, I've asked the kids. Now I'm on the internet. And there's a lot of blogging these days, isn't there? Uh, internet um, influencers, they call them, don't they? And there's a lot of well-being and money sites cropping up. And some of them have got some really good things in there. Some of them, not so good. And I saw one which had 50 tips how to save money. And quite a few of them were almost anti-financial well-being. For example, one said, don't go to parties and weddings of people that you don't know very well or more distant family members such as cousins. They won't really miss you and you can save money. What an awful tip. How depressing is that? Of course you should go to because you meet new people and you have fun and social well-being is the most important part of well-being. Setting themselves up as a money expert and telling you not to go to the weddings of cousins. Well said, Chris. Well said indeed. Right. What's our master of meanness got for us today then, Tomo? Master of meanness. I like that. So a lot of us at the moment are working from home. And what a lot of people don't know is that when you work from home, you're able to get some tax relief based on some of the things that we have to use more on a daily basis. So a lot of us are using more electricity, using broadband, etc. more of that at home than we would do if we were in the office and pay for by, by our employer. So, and unless your employer gives you an allowance to, to cover some of this, what you're actually able to do is get some tax relief on it. And that works out that you can claim up to about £6 a week as this electricity utility bill usage, and then get tax relief on that particular amount. So, quickly get a calculator out because I can't do the mass that quickly in my head and make sure it's right. So that works out about 300 quid that you can put towards your tax bill as a write-off, which would save you somewhere in the region of 60 odd quid a year. Having worked from home myself, pretty much all my working life, that's what I've always done. Yeah. The use of home as an office is what they categorize it in. in the, uh, my accountant deals with it all. But uh, yeah, no, it's very good. And you do at least get some money back. Because of course, there are more costs. You've got, particularly in the winter, you've got your heating and your lighting and uh, on the sport on TV that you have to watch. Yeah, well, quite, quite. We, we, as, we're, as we're recording this, the uh, second test, Pakistan v England, is, is going to be on in about half an hour's time. So that, that would be... On, right. Yeah, we had. Um, but, but no, seriously, a lot of people who are self-employed or do these tax returns, it's natural. It's second nature because accountants tell them a lot of people are paid by PAYE, i.e. their pay slip, pays all their tax. Mm. So there is a form for you to fill in to claim this. So if you type in HMRC P87, you'll be able to see the form. Very simple. Fill that in, send it off. And you know what? It's not huge amounts of money, but it's tax relief there that's for people who are working from home who wouldn't usually. Domo, Domo, saving small amounts of money is what you do best. You know it. There's no one better at it in the world. Right, uh, let's move on, Chris. Uh, why don't you introduce our subject for today, which you're calling, I believe, the Schwartz Circumplex, which I think was running the 2.30 at Chepstow yesterday. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. So the Schwartz Circumplex, which really needs to be said slowly, regular listeners will remember a couple of podcasts we did with Professor Tim Kasser of Knox University in America. Yeah, they were numbers 42 and 46, I believe, from memory, as if That's, I don't have a script. My script now says, thank you, Tomo, but it was daydreaming. <laughs> yes, I know I just jumped in because he, he was supposed to <laughs> sorry, say that. Sorry, sorry, could you do that? 
Can you do that again? Sorry, I was daydreaming. Looking no, I'm at keeping my... that in. I'm keeping that in. <laughs> so, thank you, Tomo. Um, <laughs> Professor Kasser has written a great book called Hypercapitalism. And if you're interested in an alternative look at economics, it's absolutely fantastic. If you're not, it still contains lots of insight into our relationship to money and the pressures on us to spend money and accumulate stuff. And it's in comic form. It has pictures. I love it. So it's really a really easy and fun read. And those who know me know that I'm not an avid reader. I'm an audiobook kind of guy. But I have read this front to back and it is a good and fun read. Now, one of the founding principles that Professor Kafter introduces is the idea that a person who holds financial success as one of their primary values will be less happy than they might otherwise have been. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. So it comes from that Stuart circumplex model. So I thought we might spend 10 minutes looking at this fascinating theory. Before we go on and look at this theory, Chris, uh, you talked earlier about how one of somebody's uh, holding financial success as a primary value. What do you mean by the word value in this context? What is a value as opposed to, say, a, a belief or a goal? Oh, that's, a, that's a really good starting point because um, a value, according to Schwartz, is, uh, I, I, I think of it as like our own individual standards. Um, he uses the word cherished a lot when he talks about um, values, and I think that's a really revealing word. Um, so, for example, he says that values are something that we're not necessarily aware of, but we do become aware of them when we are being forced to take an action which conflicts with our cherished values. So we're not always aware of our values, but we are aware of our beliefs. So in some ways, you could say that beliefs are values that are put into practice. OK, could, could you give an example of that? Oh, should I jump in here, Chris? Yeah. Uh, I think of, I see it quite often with the conversations I have with, with clients at Ovation. Obviously, we talk quite a lot of depth about their values. And I, I can think of a client who had particularly strong Christian values. And this turned... This in turn leads to a belief that they should be helping others. You know, as, an, as a result, an important part of their financial plan was philanthropy or, or is philanthropy. So you know, we follow the principles of philanthropy that we talked about on the podcast before. You know, regular planned giving to causes that mean something to you rather than, you know, that instant gratification to try and assuage guilt. So planned regular giving to causes that, that, that means something you know you also allowed to see the impact of that giving you know in, in this way they're able to fulfill their beliefs which are based on their values you know if we suggested the client invest into a fund for example that was invested in arms manufacturing that's going to counter their values as well so not only are we looking at the financial plan how they spend in their money but also how they invest in their money is another thing another action that is aligned to their values. Great, but presumably we have more than one value because we talk about a set of values, don't we? Yeah, and that's a very important part of the story. We order our values to a system of priorities. So when we need to take an action, it's going to affect more than one value, and it is the trade-off that we choose between the values that forms our attitudes and our behaviours. Got you. So we have lots of values. We don't know they're there, but they lead to our beliefs and the values are ordered into a certain priority which then directly influences our behavior 
Yeah, exactly. I'll give you an example just to illustrate how this works in practice. I uh, am a trained business coach and I was trained by a, a chap called Jan Bowen Nielsen, um, who many of, of our listeners who are in the financial services world will know. He trains a lot of advisors on coaching skills. And I was talking about this with Jan and he gave me an example of honesty versus politeness. Now, most people will say that they are honest, that they hold the value of honesty as being really, really important. But they will also hold the value of politeness. So how we order those two values will determine our behaviours. So if somebody asks you something personal, perhaps whether, I don't know, a new hairstyle suits them or do you like my, my shirt? The value of politeness to not offend very often will override the value of honesty. And that therefore leads to our behaviour. So you're suggesting that values are something we don't necessarily know about until they're challenged. And, and if so, does this mean that values are set and constant or can they change over time? Yeah, they can change um, for sure. I, I think uh, as we go through life, some values remain, remain constant, but others are bound to be affected by our experiences. Um, the Kolb's cycle of learning that we describe in the Financial Wellbeing book is all about how experiences affect behaviours and values. Yeah, I can give an example of this too. One I'm sure quite a few people can relate to. My values have definitely changed since becoming a parent. I look at things very differently. My wife may argue with this, but I'm certainly some of my values are less self-absorbed. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a shift. And, and I think moments and events in your life do, do shift it. I think that is very true. And I'm just sticking with the parenting example. I always got on well with my dad as a kid, but we weren't particularly close. But when I became a dad myself, I began to understand the sacrifices that he'd made in order to bring up me and my three brothers in terms of his own life um, and the values that he held dear in order to be the best dad that he possibly could be. And therefore, I think as a result of that insight, that personal insight that I opened myself up to, my values then began to change as a result. I'm just going to... Chuck another example in, if I may, and I've actually gone through it the last month or so about certainly the Colby cycle of learning. I'm watching a really lovely show on Amazon Prime. Um, yes, I've got Amazon Prime. What that says about my values, I don't know. But it's a show called This Is Us. And there is a character on there, the father, and his name's Jack. And, you know, he's a complex character like an awful lot of us are. But a lot of what he does as a father and as a man, I... I I look up to him and go, wow, what a, what a great example. Um, so maybe there's, you know, my beliefs in there that I see that as a great example. But some of the things he's doing, he's like, oh, well, maybe I should be thinking about being a little bit better. And, and you see that, you see that example, and maybe that affects my values and the way I should do things. I don't know. I, I, just something that I've been watching and seeing. And maybe that is, is that a fair reflection of what cold cycle of learning yeah absolutely experiences affecting your actions which create new experiences yeah. which affect your actions and so we form values absolutely and therefore values can change how our values relate to each other and how they match with our behaviors the matching of values and behaviors is a really important key to happiness and well-being there is so much pressure on us to live in a certain way from employers partners from society from tv shows that often our behaviours and our values do not match. And when that happens, it can cause real issues, including mental health problems, addiction and bad money behaviours. But are the common values that we all share? I mean, Tomo's mentioned one, caring for others, which I hope is something that we all feel that we do. Uh, but what other values are there? So under the, the Schwartz model, 
the caring for others is called benevolence. And there are nine others, so 10 in total. I won't go through them all, but to give you some examples, you've got conformity, where you restrain your own actions to not accept others, uh, upset others. Power, all about social status and prestige and control. Hedonism, which is obviously pleasure for yourself. Universalism, tolerance and protection for everybody and for nature. And security, harmony and stability of society, of relationships and of yourself. Okay, so they're all quite clear values. I think I understand those as you've explained them, but some of them sound like they could easily be in conflict with each other. So, for example, someone who's got a strong power value, likes being in control, is, is, is surely unlikely to have a strong conformity value. Yeah, exactly. And that's where this whole subject starts to get really interesting, I think, because some of these values are very closely, closely correlated. Conformity and security, for example, where people will go along with society's expectations in order to preserve harmony. And Schwartz puts all of these 10 into a neat circle, the circumplex referred to in the title of this podcast, which puts values that are closely aligned next to each other and values which conflict with each other on opposite sides of the circle. Yeah, we, we put a copy of this diagram in the show notes if any listeners want to, want to have a look. Go on the website, financialwow-being.co.uk and click on the podcast tab. You'll see full show notes, probably not showing up in, in the Apple podcast. That's my producer bit, by the way, guys. It's about the only producery bit I've done today. So, um, But yeah, the diagram's there. So another- yeah, I'm just looking at it now and it's rather a splendid thing. So another good example of conflict could be universalism, tolerance for all people, which is directly opposite power on the circle as they are conflicting values. Okay, so this is all beginning to make sense. So we have 10 basic values, some conflict with each other, some complement each other. But bringing it back to the purpose of these podcasts, what does this have to do with how we spend our money? Well, this is where Professor Cass's work comes back in. He created the link between these values and our personal goals. He surveyed some 1,800 people, asking them for a rating of various statements, such as, I will be financially successful and I will have many good friends. And he therefore kind of refined the Schwartz model more aligned to personal goals. Now, some of his findings might not be a huge surprise. For example, hedonism and spirituality were in conflict on opposite sides, whereas self-acceptance and community were very closely related. Okay, I can see where you're leading with all of this, Chris, I think. Anyway, so if Professor Cass has come up with a bunch of values which include self-acceptance and financial success, surely the punchline here is going to be the extent to which these two are correlated. Exactly right. You're way ahead of me. So what he found was that the values of financial success and self-acceptance were opposite each other. In other words, someone who holds financial success as one of their important values is unlikely to have high self-acceptance. And also on the other side from financial success and therefore in conflict are things like physical health, community and safety. So we can also bring in intrinsic and extrinsic motivation into this argument which is something Tim Cassa talks about at length yeah our old friend yes remind us what they are Tomo wow here we go I'll give it a go okay so extrinsic extrinsic motivation is one that we do for other people that results in a reward for someone perhaps financial or praise or admiration and intrinsic motivation is one we do just for ourselves for the inner satisfaction so there's no external factor we do it for ourselves 
know, research shows that achieving an intrinsic motivation increases well-being, whereas achieving an extrinsic motivation does not. Absolutely. And let me guess, the value of financial success is an extrinsic motivation. Correct. 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 Although there's a little bit of a a grey area, certainly what you've given a good example there, David, but when it's doing it for other people, that can have an it can be a look like an extrinsic, but it's intrinsic. We think of family. You're doing something for your family, could be seen as an extrinsic, but you're actually doing it because you're intrinsically motivated to help those close around you. So there's a little bit of a grey area that I just wanted to clarify there. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, there is a line between, you know, there's, the, it's not you are either extrinsic or, in, or intrinsic. You know, there's a line where you are a, a little bit. But the, for the purposes of this argument, the logic is the evidence, if you like, that a person who sees money as a measure of success, who holds the extrinsic value of financial success highly, are placing it above the intrinsic value, such as self-acceptance, and will therefore be less happy than they could otherwise have been. Drum roll, please. (laughs) (laughs) Which would suggest that reviewing those values and understanding where they've come from is going to be a pathway to increasing our well-being. That would seem logical. Mm -hmm. One of the parts of the financial planning process is to really understand ours or a client's motivations. It's the know thyself process that runs through the financial well-being book and throughout all of these podcasts. At the beginning of the financial planning process, we need to take time to make sure that we really understand two things. Our relationship to money and our values around money. So for example, if a client tells us that they're worried about the planet and want to use their money to look after their family and do some social good, but they are spending their money on expensive cars and spending all their time to work to win approval of others, then we can see that their values and their behaviours are in conflict. So we might then work with this client to help them understand themselves better and to reach their own conclusions about whether they are using their money to increase their well-being. And put simply, the way to do this, and this is where it's quite challenging to do ourselves, is we just need to ask good, open questions and just allow somebody to answer, then push again so we can start to get what's deep-seated about what's important to someone and be brave enough that if we spot these conflicts, that we raise it with them because there might be a moment of self-awareness that they didn't realise that these conflicts were going on because we're busy, aren't we? Our lives are busy and we don't get time to reflect on what's truly important and whether our actions are aligned to that. And ultimately, as ever, it's all about our financial well-being. So I hope you've enjoyed this little uh, delve into the world of the Schwartz circumplex. I've certainly found it quite fascinating. Um, And I hope that you will be fascinated yourself enough to join us next time as we revisit another one of our financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris. 
And David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs>